This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Benner, and today I'm sharing with you episode 46 with Jarell Carabello of Viva Wellness. Jarell is a licensed mental health counselor trained in psychological counseling. He has worked with New York City Anti-Violence Project and LGBTQ young adults at the True Colors Residence. He has also done a lot of education about sexual assault prevention, healthy sexuality and consent, and mental health and stress management. A few years back, Jarell became the co-founder of Viva Wellness, a holistic health and wellness practice where they do mental health therapy just a little bit different. In this episode, Jarell dives deep into finding a therapist that is right for you, the lack of representation of black individuals in the therapy field, and having no shame in feeling your emotions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jarell and learn a little bit more about the mental health field. Okay, today on the podcast, we have Jarell Carabello. Welcome to the show, Jarell. Hi, thank you. I want to start out by diving into your background because you've really done it all and worked with a lot of different groups of people, including, you mentioned New York City Anti-Violence Project, LGBTQ, young adults, and working with prevention of a sexual assault on campuses and a handful of other things. Do you want to just share about your background and some of the work you've done? Sure. Um, So I... I am a licensed therapist. I attended undergrad in North Carolina, which is where I'm originally from, living in New York City now, and studied psychology in undergrad. And from there, had the opportunity to, uh, right after graduation, get involved with an organization that was dedicated to preventing sexual assault on college campuses on military bases. And and so I was a presenter and educator for them uh, for the course of an academic year. And from that, it was kind of serendipitous, uh, found, out, found out about the grad program that I eventually went to uh, here in New York City at Teachers College at Columbia University. So went there, and uh, which is a very multicultural focused program. And uh, we talked a lot about these sort of different statuses and roles in terms of race, uh, gender, sexuality, class. Uh, And so it was really informative, especially being in that kind of space in New York City. And from there, I was able to work in like different agencies and uh, community agencies uh, throughout New York City. So I started off doing an internship during school for the New York City Anti-Violence Project, which is dedicated to supporting queer survivors of hate violence, sexual violence, and 
interpersonal violence in terms of domestic violence and relationships. So did that and then moved on to working after graduation in a mental health field doing counseling and case management. Did that for a few years. Then went to um, a residential program in which I was first a in-house counselor and then a director for a program for LGBTQ young adults. And so I was providing mental health services and housing as um, as healthcare was kind of our model. And then from there, started doing private practice. So we went from group practices and now in uh, my own mental health and wellness practice called Viva Wellness, in which we see a lot of different people and uh, really help people find the tools necessary to take care of themselves and, and navigate their lives the best that they can. Wow, that's a lot of different experiences. You yep. talk about the different type of education in your program in yeah. grad school. Was that a common thing? Was that something that drew you to the program or was that a common thing that's in all programs or do you think that was really unique to yours? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think when I heard about the program, it was actually while I was traveling around, I met someone actually at Tulane University, which is where I initially wanted to go for undergrad. So it was kind of this weird synchronous experience, actually. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so the it was a coordinator of Greek life who I was talking with and they mentioned the program. And yeah, it just, for me, was coming from where I come from in like, you know, suburban rural North Carolina, being a man of color, being a black man, it was important to me that if I was going to enter the field that I would have the ability to really be myself, but also really understand and work with people um, not in a vacuum. Right. And understand that all the things you bring to the table as you walk into the room affect how you see yourself, affect how you see the issues that you're dealing with and impacts how the world treats you. And so, yeah, I think that program was unique in the way that it was sort of this kind of multicultural thread was all throughout the program. And I think a lot of graduate level coursework um, and programs in counseling, or at least, you know, years ago, tended to have you know like a course here or there that you could take which was like centered around race or or ethnic identity but ours was really about from day one like you needed to be talking about yourself in these terms you needed to help people understand themselves in these terms and so i thought it was really unique at the time to be able to have those kind of conversations what came first do you think the experience in your program or do you feel like you went into the program really looking for that or did the program show you that's the work you wanted to do after your school yeah i i think that it was really this um it was something i I didn't really know how that existed in academia uh to be honest is sort of like talking about these sort of issues and it was something that was always important to me personally. And so it was kind of like this real convergence of my personal self and interest meeting this sort of academic space, which, you know, really wanted to explore these issues and wanted to prepare us for different kinds of conversations and working with different kinds of people. And so it was just, yeah, it was kind of like this really almost magical thing. So like when I got there, I was like, oh, like this is this is it. This is where I was supposed to be. This was the right program for me. And so it was a really, really kind of special experience in that way. Yeah, that feeling of being the perfect fit, finding something that you didn't really know you needed, but yeah. landing upon it is just something really special. Mm-hmm. And what led you initially to wanting to become a therapist? Was it experiences with your own mental health or what was it? Yeah, I, I think I was 
always a I, I, I think that I was born a very sensitive person so a, a sensitive boy which was an interesting experience yeah, growing yeah. up uh, and so I think that when as I got older and that wasn't something that was very prized for me it wasn't something that was like this great trait that I had when I was younger it was something that was seen often as a bit of a liability of like oh you're too sensitive like the world is harsh you have to you have to be a little bit tougher like you shouldn't let people get under your skin um, so there was a lot of messaging both within my family and externally obviously that was sort of communicating this like you have to be real cool and like calm about things whereas I was having a lot of rich internal experiences and emotions that I really didn't know how to navigate very well because I wasn't learning the skills because I really yeah. wasn't supposed to be having those feelings, right? And, and so for me, it was like growing up in this process of being and knowing that I was a very sensitive person and trying to figure out my way through, I mean, obviously like middle school was a challenge <laughs> as it is for most people uh, and, and moving through those spaces in life and, and finally getting to high school uh, it might have been junior or senior year in which I was I ended up taking a college level uh, psychology course intro to psychology course and I at that point I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my future um, and I ended up taking the psychology course and it was like everything kind of clicked again I had the weirdest teacher first of all Miss <laughs> um, Romick, I like if you're still around, I thank you because <laughs> she showed me that it was okay. And she was nothing like me. She was, you know, a, a white woman at, that was teaching a community college level course in, the, frankly, the middle of nowhere. Um, had, you know, her own kind of family and stuff. And I didn't see myself in her except for the fact that she was really weird. And she was herself from day one. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, this is uh, a field of uh, interest of mine, just being able to understand people and make sense of my own experiences with people. And you can be yourself. You don't have to be a carbon copy of everyone else. There's room for that sort of creative license. And, and that is what really drew me to psychology. And I think once I got into undergrad and started to learn more, I was like sold on the concept. And I was like, okay, I think I want to do this in a way that is directly applied to people. I want to be connected to people and share things with them and help them. And then in my own process, obviously I'm just understanding people more, understanding myself more. And so, you know, things with like, dealing with worry or anxiety or you know shifts in my own mood it was really helpful and it, it just sort of really clicked for me and that's how I ultimately decided like okay this is I think therapy is the way to go wow what a story of how you found that and how just how you started I think that is a cultural a very cultural thing where we think men can't have emotional feelings or need mm -hmm. therapy or speak out about things that they're feeling what is something that you try to do to sway away from that cultural idea? I don't know. It's kind of weird now because I'm obviously we're several years later and 
after undergrad, after grad school, after being in the field for a while. And so I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty very much set now in this space of like, yep, you feel whatever you feel. It's all valid. And like, if I'm upset, I'm going to say I'm upset or you're going to know I'm upset or if I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. And that's going to be that. Um, I, I was actually just talking to some friends about this recently. And I don't know, the thing I've just really been trying to communicate to people, especially other guys, is that it's really freeing to just not judge or place boundaries on what you're feeling, you know? And, and like to be able to have the space just to be is so freeing. And I think I just remind, try to remind myself and I try to remind other people, whether it's clients or friends or whoever, that every emotion that you have is valid. So just listen to it. What is it trying to tell you? It means something that you're feeling angry. It means something that you're feeling sad or anxious. So instead of saying, I shouldn't be feeling this, why don't you just like hold it and be curious and say like, what is this about? Like what, what is making me feel so sad right now? Do I feel like I've lost something? Or why am I so angry? Is, did someone do something that I felt hurt me? Like, what is that? And what, what was about it that, that was so hurtful? And just using what you feel as something that could really help you navigate relationships in a much healthier way, ultimately. From my view, not as a therapist, mm. I do see just this culture idea of, yeah, you should feel this yeah. way and you should, you know, this certain thing should make you feel this way and this is how you should respond to it and a lot of things like that, even down to that you should be giving yourself self-care mm -hmm. in certain ways and things like that. I think that's definitely messes with everyone's yeah. response to things as well as their mental health yeah. and so that's great that you're able to share that and i feel like that comes across probably comes across strong strong to your clients yeah. and just having someone hear them and say it's valid yeah, too absolutely as we talked about july is minority mental health awareness mm -hmm. month and so I want to kind of talk about the differences that you experience as, as a minority growing up with your mental health compared to others in the population. What do you think is kind of, and you do a lot of work with minority mental health as well, what do you think is different um, regarding minority mental health compared to the general pub public and utilizing therapists and things like that? Yeah, and I, I think I just, and uh, first want to say that I think part of the, we're, we're living in such an interesting time right now in thinking about racial justice issues and also in talking about language. And so I don't know if the AP style book, Associated Press style book, just released that they're going to capitalize the B in black, uh, which is something that a lot of people have advocated for a very long time for. And the reason I bring this up is that because part of my challenge with talking about this is that we we talk about black people we talk about people of color as being minorities which is actually not one objectively not true and also i think positions white people as being the majority group and that's not true and so I, while I appreciate that we have Minority Mental Health Month, I think it's also really important to note that like even that language is a little bit problematic and that, you know, what we're really what are we really talking about? We're talking about black people. We're talking about other people of color and their access to mental health and services and support. And, and so, uh, you know, I think that the real challenge is that um, and I think this is that language is emblematic of that is psychology and health has really been 
that those both of those systems have been oppressive towards a lot of different groups over over time. So whether that be women, uh, whether that be black people, whether that be other people of color, um, these systems have really um, done a number on people basically who weren't straight white upper middle class folks and and so i think it's really important to note that some of the some of the barriers to care for black people in particular has to do with a real distrust in the medical system because there were uh you know experiments conducted on black people you know ever since they landed on american soil uh at the hands of doctors and other health professionals to get information about diseases, um, you know, uh, and so it's just really so when we talk about this, I think it's we can't divorce it from those historical experiences because I think a lot of times, even with men, right, we talk, we say like, oh, why don't men like to go to the doctor? Um, uh, like, why is that a thing? Why do why are more women uh, utilizing healthcare? And I think we have to really just start asking the questions like, why is that? And, um, and I think for black people, it is because there is this great distrust in the system and, and rightfully so. Some of that still continues. Like when we talk about black maternal mental health, uh, black maternal health, um, the numbers of black mothers dying in hospitals is several times over white mothers dying in childbirth. Like, why is that? Right. Why is it that we, um, don't prescribe pain medication for black people in the same way that we do for white folks for the same condition. It's because there's literally a belief in medical students that black people feel less pain and that we literally have thicker skin. Um, and so it's like all of these, all of these ideas are deeply embedded in American health systems. And that also means it's deeply, those abuses are deeply embedded in black people. And so I think, you know, when, for a lot of us, I think that we have, one of the things that we have left is our minds. And, and so we think like, I don't want anyone messing with my mind because I know what I see. I know what the truth is. I know what exists in the world. And so I think that that breeds a lot of fear about therapy and about mental health to, um, you know, because we might assume that we're going to be gaslit. We're going to be told that our experiences aren't valid or that, oh, maybe this wasn't actually an experience of racism. Maybe it was just this. And and that is that doesn't make for trust, like a, a, a relationship built on trust. And I think that therapy relies on that. It relies on developing trust and then initially just suspending suspicion so that you can get the help that you need as you try and build that trust. And so I think there's a lot of a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety and concern, and rightfully so. And I think for me, that's why it was important to be it's important to be a black male therapist and be visible in the way that I am to sort of say like there this system can be for you. Um, there are people that can help you, that can understand your experiences, and can help other professionals understand our lived experiences so they can best support you.
A lot of what you said was just super powerful of how you can, how culture can make a change in not only just regular society, but in the medical field Mm -hmm. as well. A lot of what you said just makes me stop and think like, how is that, how are a lot of those thoughts still a thing and still being spread through medical yeah. school and things like that. It's really like scary that. to think about. Could one of the reasons be that there's not a diverse group of therapists? Like, do you think a lot of therapists are black mm. or not? Or is it just a disproportionate ratio? Yeah, I think um, there is, I think I saw a statistic somewhere, and this is specific to psychologists, um, but I think there the amount of black psychologists percentage-wise is maybe like three to four percent uh right which is you know i think and i and i could be completely wrong so statisticians if i'm like misquoting this please don't come after me um that uh the amount of black people the people who identify as black in america might be somewhere in like the 15 percent range or something um it might be higher than that, but so I could be misquoting. But even if you go with that, if that's like a low estimate, that means that like we, in order for it to be quote unquote equal, equal representation in the fields, there would need to be four times more black psychologists, essentially, than there currently are. Yeah. Right. And so it's like when you think about that on a psychologist level, you're like, wow, like that. That's just one field. So then. I don't even, I can't even think about, and that's just one portion of the field, right? That's a psychologist. That's mm-hmm. not like a master's level therapist. Um, so I would imagine that those numbers are lower, um, not lower than psychologists, but are also low representative wise for, you know, licensed professionals on the master's level, um, social workers, etc. cetera. Um, and then just think about all the other fields that exist and the, and how those numbers might be reflected uh, in other fields as well. And so then you think, well, hmm, there aren't enough black therapists, there aren't enough black doctors. And uh, I want to be very clear, like, I think that anyone can help anyone, right? And I think, but it also requires if you're not a black person, you're not a black therapist, for instance, you have to actively work. You know, a lot of us are talking about anti being actively anti-racist right now. You have to actively work to like parse out all of those pieces that you've been conditioned to believe that maybe in this moment you don't even know that you believe or that you assume that may not be true. And so in order to give competent care, there's a lot of work that has to be done uh, both personally and professionally to get to that point where you can really see people fully and I think that's an ongoing, like a lifelong process. And so, you know, for a non-black people, that that process, even in the helping professions, especially has to be very intentional because you don't want to um, you don't want to recreate some of those past abuses in these very small ways. Right. And in the middle of a session, like you don't want to you don't want to have a black client coming to you saying, oh, you know, I I had this experience where I was walking around my neighborhood and, you know, this woman made this comment to me, but seemingly didn't say anything to anyone else. And have your therapist say, well, you know, um, it sounds like you think that that was racist. Like, why? Why would you assume that? Why would you assume that that person was acting in this way? Um, what could it be something else? And like, it could be, 
<laughs> but like in that moment, right, it's like you're being vulnerable enough to share your experience and then you're met with this sort of questioning, which really means like, oh, maybe I can't trust someone with this kind of material. And so that's why it is important to have like representation because that's you have someone has lived experience of the same thing. Right. So that's an, an easier kind of path and arguably for some people a better path. Um, but that's not the only path. And so I just want to encourage, like, as you said, like uh, people in the health professions, therapists, otherwise to really be doing that work so that we all can be able to work effectively with everyone. Because the truth of the matter is, especially in 2020, we're all struggling. It is like times are rough. And so we need all the help we can get. And so, like, let's be prepared to do that. Definitely. And I think the big point that you make is needing to have trust, especially in the medical yeah. field and more so in the therapy mm -hmm. realm, just to have the trust. So and I, I do think we, you know, going to a therapist, you do kind of want to have someone that, that's kind of like you to have a similar experience so that they can not shut you down and be able to kind of empathize with what you're mm -hmm. feeling. So did you feel that you were limited in becoming a therapist? Why do you think mm -hmm. the field of therapy has such low numbers of people that are black? That's a good question. I think part, a large part of that is what we've just talked about, right? It's like that distrust of like, oh, I don't want to be a part of a system that hasn't done right by people like me in the past. That's, so I think that's one part of it. I don't know how big that part is, but I think it's certainly there. Um, and I think it's also, you know, one of the things that came from the, that we had conversations about during like Obama's presidency is just the power of representation, right? And visibility. Um, it's hard to believe that you can be something when you don't see yourself reflected there already. And so I think that because there hasn't been, or at least not visibly, a lot of black psychologists or black therapists, people don't really see it as an option. Um, they don't really see it as something that like makes sense for their life because maybe there are other things that like they've seen around in their area, in their family, in their neighborhood, and that seems more accessible, right? Um, but I think the other, the, the reality is that the other part of it too is that um, ex just on the accessibility front is that to become a therapist requires a ton of investment, both emotionally and financially. You know, you have to go to graduate school to become a therapist. And after that, you have to spend years in practice, supervised practice, before you're able to get licensure to practice independently. And so those jobs you typically get right out of grad school don't pay that much. And so if you have, if you have other responsibilities, if you have family that you also need to support, if you have to take care of these other things and because you are black and maybe if you're a black woman, if you're a black trans person, you're making less than other people anyway because of those factors. It's like you're already really limited in what you see as possible in this field. And so I think like addressing those systemic issues is definitely a part of getting more black therapists, getting more Latinx therapists, getting more trans therapists is that, you know, we have to we have to increase accessibility for people so that people can see the possibility. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. And I hope that that continues. And on the flip side of that, you spoke on having people that aren't black really do the mm -hmm. work to be trustworthy and accessible and things like that. What does that take? Does that take programs like the one that you were yeah. in for schoolwork or what kind of thing does it things does it take to 
build that. Yeah, I think in therapists, definitely, it requires, you know, that kind of coursework um, to have these kind of conversations integrated in all that you explore as a therapist, right? Even just thinking about power dynamics in the room, right? It's like, oh, like, I know that because I walk in the world as a man and that I have the voice, like the literal tone of voice that I have, when I say things, it commands a certain attention, whereas some like a female counterpart may not, right? And so, and that's not because I'm smarter. <laughs> it's not because I'm more eloquent. It's just because I have the tone of voice I have and that I'm a man. And so like thinking about those issues, like even in a therapy session of like, if I'm making a suggestion, how is that really being perceived? based on how I walk in the world, based on the fact that I'm a man, I'm a black man, and that I'm not a small person. Like, how does that come off? Like, that power dynamic, right? And I'm in this authoritative kind of position of like, I'm the therapist expert, right? And you're, and a client is coming to me for help. And so I think that for, um, you know, white therapists or non-black therapists in training, it really does require examining all these kind of dynamics as you go throughout your program and beyond. So being able to do your own personal work outside of that, and sometimes your own therapy can be helpful for that, is sort of picking apart and deprogramming and deconditioning all these kind of messages you have about, um, and stereotypes you have about people, about yourself, and, and how you navigate things like power, access, um, relatability, like all these things are, it's a lot. <laughs> and I, as I'm saying this, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a lot of work. I, I know this to be true, but as I say it, I, I can imagine people listening like, oh my God, like that's that requires so much of you. And I think that that's really the point, right? Is that to being a therapist requires so much of you. And, uh, and I think it's also the greatest gift to be able to sit with people and help them through difficult times in their lives but it, it does require a lot of professional and personal work to make sure that you're doing the best that you can to be anti-racist, um, to be anti-sexist, uh, even in the context of that space, which is supposed to be healing, which sometimes can be tricky. Yeah, I mean, it is a lot of work and it's years and years mm -hmm. and uh, thousands of mm -hmm. years of work to unravel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point is we all need to do our part. and. You know, you never really sit down and think that the work of therapy could be something that needs to be unraveled yeah. and reworked and redone, but it really is. And each area in our society needs to be looked at and people like you sharing what can be done is just so helpful for for the next, you know, someone right now could be listening that wants to be a therapist yeah. and is doing the work and could be one person that starts making a yeah. change. And I'll also say that, you know, I've, a lot of the people who have been sort of positive, powerful forces in my life that are outside of like family or close friends have also been white women in the counseling field or in, you know, in, in college and in, in these kind of mentoring experiences. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it is really possible, you know, it is possible to have people who can champion you and, and can model you know, these sort of anti-racist ideologies, those people do exist. And, you know, I think it's important to know that that it's possible. No, no matter where you come from, no matter what your experiences are, 
if you are a non-black person who wants to be a therapist or even outside of that and you want to become anti-racist you want to really um see people more fully you can do that and you could be really just an incredible force for the people that you connect with on a day-to-day basis and i think that that's the best part is that like you have you have the power to be whatever you choose to be it requires a lot of work uh but if you take up that work just know that that goodness will reverberate so far like it's unimaginable Mm -hmm. yeah and on that topic i think something that really stood out to me while i was looking through your website was what you write about what your services are you some of the things that you wrote are or you have written Mm -hmm. on there are the gender and sexual identity concerns and culture and race or racial identity concerns and i think that's so interesting as well as very needed Mm -hmm. because I don't feel like that's something that you see on every therapist's website or even a few other therapists' mm-hmm. website. I feel like that's really unique to you. Which is kind of like mind boggling to me, to be honest. Um, you know, and it's you know, I, I'm I'm of the of the vein that I as visible as I am in the in the work that I try and do, I also hold try and hold my peers accountable, right? My colleagues accountable, is that you can't say that you are like um anti-racist if you can't say the word black (laughs) like uh, on your website or in your or in your profile or if you don't know the differences or the implications by saying something like person of color versus african-american right like those things mean very have very different places in time in our society and culture and it's okay if you don't know that but like if you don't know what those implications are that's something for you to learn it's like why certain words why are we now capitalizing to be in black right why why was it you know the language of before to say like african-american why was that appropriate like where did that come from like all of these things it's like you have to be able to speak honestly and with authenticity to the people that you want to help and so if you can't name those things then even me as a consumer if i see your website and i know that part of what i need to work on is like i i'm having a hard time adjusting to all that's going on in the world and having more all of this conversation in the mainstream about race in the way that it is if you can't say if i don't see the words black if i don't see racial identity in your you know, Psych Today page, I'm going to assume that I can't trust you because I'm going to assume that you don't know that language or that you don't have an understanding about it, right? Or if you don't say queer affirming or LGBTQ+, then I'm going to look and say, hmm, maybe you're not the best person for me because you can't speak to these lived experiences, even in a very simple blurb, just to show that you're positive, right? And, and so I think that we like being able to communicate with people even before you meet with them is really important and i think that that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on and is sort of saying like we want to be relatable and authentic in our presentation so people really know what they're getting when they walk through the door yeah all of that is just so interesting to see you talk about how yeah why isn't that a mainstream thing that people are advertising and talking about because it is something so relevant in so many people's lives and in society and things like that and yeah you're limiting yourself not not being open to working with those groups of people and you know why i think it's that way is because this is a part of the structure of health and therapy in the past in particular is that like you're not 
that it, there's a there's a foundational belief that everyone is the same. So that's deeply embedded in healthcare and even in mental health is that everyone is the same. Mm, and so yeah. like e even that, right? This if you take that and unpack it, it's just like oh, so like my experience is the same as like my experience being like a, a black man walking around the the Upper West Side, for instance, is the same as a white man walking around the Upper West Side at like 11 o'clock at night, that is not the same. <laughs> that is not the same. Like when I go out to walk my dog, I have a consciousness that some of my neighbors do not, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we are not the same. There are a lot of similarities, but we're not the same because uh, the world doesn't treat us the same. And I think that that idea is just deeply embedded in therapy and mental health and health in general. And so like that's part of the unpacking and the unlearning is like, oh, maybe maybe it's not the same, even though they're both men. Maybe they don't experience the world the same. Maybe the world doesn't see them as the same. So maybe there's space to talk about those differences. Maybe that's actually therapeutic and helpful. And along those lines, how often do you have someone that just isn't the right fit for you? And what do you do to guide them so they're not discouraged from therapy as a whole? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it comes up with uh, therapists all the time. Uh, it's sort of like the idea of fit. I think what's interesting, kind of like a counterpoint to your question is because I am so visible and, and try to have like a presence online and do different things and write is that the people that find me tend to be a better match because they already know so much, right? Yeah, they they okay. kind of already know how I talk or like the things that I talk about or like, you know, you have some idea of the belief systems that I have. And so I often find that um, I, I tend to find really good matches and working relationships with clients very quickly because they're like, oh, you said this, I heard you say this on a podcast, or I saw that you wrote this. And like that to me was really, really helpful. So I already kind of know part of what I'm going to get. And, and so that's one benefit from like the business perspective for therapists is like, this is one of the benefits is that more of your ideal kind of clients will find you if you're open in some ways. But it's also the case that like not everyone works for everyone and that's okay. So I often tell people, you know, I have a, I do an initial phone consult with, you know, I offer that to all my new potential clients. And, you know, at the end of that, or at the beginning and also probably the end, I say, you know, I just want you to know that not everyone works with everyone. And if you determine that you don't want to move forward with me, I completely understand. And I will give you some resources or referrals to explore otherwise. It's a part of the process that you feel like you need to find the right fit. And if I'm not the right fit, you still need support. So I want to do what I can to give you access to that support. I just think it's so important. That's that's an ethical duty that we're bound by as therapists is to make appropriate referrals. And so I always tell people it's not personal. I'm not going to be mad if you reject me. Say, you know what, like you don't work for me. Like there's something about the way you talk or how you do things that just doesn't work for me. I get that. That is your right as a consumer. Right to say like, nope, this isn't where I want to spend my money. This is what isn't where I want to invest my time. I totally respect that. That's a part of the job for us. Is it my favorite thing where someone says, no, I don't think you're the right fit? No, like obviously, like I think I'm great and I want people to work with me and be like, yeah, he's great. Uh, as a person, I feel that, but also as a professional, I know that it's not personal. I know this just like some things just work for certain people and other things don't, and that's okay. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think it's important for people to hear that not everyone works with everyone mm -hmm. and that 
don't be discouraged if certain therapist doesn't work for you and keep keep searching and keep looking for the help yeah and if you want to break up with your therapist break up with your therapist it's okay (laughs) it's okay to say you know what i think we've gone where we where we could together i think i need another perspective i need something else to like switch things up again the same point like all right no problem let's talk about a transition plan let's figure out if we can find the next fit for you i will help you with that because i know it's not personal it's just about finding what you need and that is the goal of therapy is is to if you're a client is for you to walk out with what you need and if you're not getting that uh, you know you should be saying something you should be advocating and a therapist should make space for you to say those things and not flip out when you say i'm thinking i need something different you know so yeah i want everyone to who's listening to know that as well so along the lines of working with you do you want to share about starting your own practice viva wellness with your partner yeah so back in what what year is this i was like where am i what year is this (laughs) uh so we opened our doors in 2018 uh, to viva wellness which is a mental health and wellness um center practice um, and funnily enough, Rachel and I were longtime friends and we met in graduate school. Um, one of the, we have yet to tell the story in full, but uh, one of our first real bonding experiences was in a group counseling class when we were co-facilitators <laughs> and, thing, and okay. things went haywire. Uh, <laughs> and so we kind of just like bonded to each other. Uh, and yeah. so like we've been friends ever since and you know, it came a point where, you know, I had already been working in private practice. I was with another group practice and, um, you know, Rachel was transitioning out of uh, working in the not-for-profit sector. And, you know, she was just like, at one point she was like, you know what, like, are you ready? I'm like, for what? (laughs) This is often how things go with Rachel and I. She's like, are you ready to do this? I'm like, what? What is it? I have questions. What do you, what are we trying to do? And she was like, I think we need to start this thing now. And we put that, we put it together and decided we really wanted to communicate about mental health different, differently. We wanted it to not feel like, you know, Freud's version of therapy where you have to very discreetly walk into a dark hallway into this very dimly lit room and not tell anyone anything and hide. No, like we're just like any professional service. We have a very specific set of skills and so you know, we, but we're still people, we're humans first. And that's why you see us, right? You see our pictures, you see us like looking like humans instead of like, I'm gonna show you this very professional shot of me in front of a white background. No shade to other people that do that. That's just not us <laughs> because like there's space for that. But our vibe is different, you know? So we created Viva Wellness to provide this really sort of holistic centered mental health and wellness care. We, we do treat and I think treat is maybe even the wrong word, is that like we support people as humans fully. And so we're, you don't have to come to us and say like, I think I have an anxiety disorder. I need to control my symptoms. You can reach out for that. But as we're working on that, if there are other things that are of value, we're also exploring those things, right? Because if you say like, oh, part of the anxiety I have at work is because I'm a black woman working in a corporate space. We're going to be talking about all those dynamics and we're going to help you sort through what we can to support you in that. And so that's really how Viva works. And we support organizations and we do workshops for corporations on supporting the mental health of their employees. We're coaching leaders 
in those organizations on you know how to navigate sort of like stress in the workplace how to minimize that for their teams and their staff so we do a lot of different things and that's that's because we view we really do view it as wellness right we want everyone to feel strong and to feel um, capable and to have skills to navigate life so that it can be the best that it can be and so if you know anyone who's interested you know, our website is vivawellnessnyc.com. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at vivawellnessnyc. And so, you know, anyone who's interested, you know, we have very handy new client form you can fill out very quick and then we'll get back to you as soon as possible and see, you know, if myself or a member of our team can help support you in whatever the next phase is. And are people able to work with you virtually as well, yeah. even outside of COVID yes, times? Yes, that is, that's a really good question. Uh, oh, and we're entering phase two in New York City, so that's nice. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, But yeah, we obviously during COVID, we've transitioned to all remote appointments, all meeting via video. Uh, I think that that's going to be something that obviously will continue for a while. And it's something we've always offered to people. You know, some people have difficult work schedules or you know, would lose the time they would have to commute. Um, and so, yeah, we've always done video appointments. And then if we need to do remote phone appointments, uh, you know, because someone's traveling or whatever, temporarily, we do that as well. Yeah, we're very flexible. And I, th I think that's part of the Viva brand is that uh, we meet you where you are and we're as flexible as we can be. So if you have trouble with scheduling, we'll figure it out. If you need to meet vi via video one week and then by phone another week we'll figure it out it's all good there's no real standard there's no one right way to do therapy and that's what we believe can people outside of new york city do a virtual therapy session? so we're only able to take on new therapy clients who are in new york state because therapy is licensed by state um and so the one thing that we can do is that even though we can't do therapy if someone has like a if they want to do like a consultation session where they have like oh i have a very specific problem like i need some feedback but i don't know if therapy is the right fit for me or they want some support on like health coaching which my partner rachel does and they say hey i'm trying to make some changes to my lifestyle those services aren't limited by state lines but therapy is what do you think that you and Rachel bring to the business that is different and unique for each of yeah, you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for one, I think we, again, we show up as humans first. Uh, and that means that we bring who we are to our spaces and our, and our workspace. And I think there's something very powerful about what each of us represent in the world, right? Like she's a white woman, I'm a black man. Um, so visibly, there's already just this, uh, I think, an important message about like what we're trying to do and how how we engage with people, because that, you know, that's part of our relationship and how we engage with each other. But I think we balance each other out. Rachel is a runner, a marathoner, a type A kind of personality and super organized and detail oriented. I am none of those things. Um, <laughs> I am, I kind of call myself like a, a, a type B plus, you know, okay. like I'm like, I'm not yeah. quite a, a type B because I definitely know that there are things I kind of get a little type A about from time to time, but I'm not detail oriented. I'm a big picture kind of person. I, I'm a person who likes to meditate and cook and practice mindfulness. So like my pace is much slower. I talk slower than she does. And so there's a real balance of kind of energy within our team, which I think is 
I, I don't know. I think it's really good to have those different, both like the different perspectives and also the different lived experiences because of how we exist in the world. And I think that that's really the strength of what we as Viva Wellness bring t- to the world. I love that. It sounds like you have just a great business motto and just everything behind it seems really well thought out and well put together for something that everyone can find a place to work with you in. Absolutely. So I do want to wrap up with a couple questions. And the first one is who or what is illuminating in your life right now? I would have to say that one sort of bright light for me recently is that as we've been navigating, you know, this sort of increased conversation about anti-racism and racial injustices, it's just seeing the vast array of people who are a part of this conversation now. And so visibly, so to see Asians for Black Lives being a very popular kind of hashtag and movement has been really heartwarming for me because I think that for so long, part of the thing of white supremacy is sort of pitting groups up against one another. And to see now that like different racial and ethnic groups are coming together around these injustices is really, really heartwarming and illuminating for me without a doubt. I love that. And while Drell, what would be your one message to send to the world? No pressure. Um, One (laughs) message to send to the world. At the end of the day, I want everyone to know that whatever you feel is valid. You don't have to question the validity of your feelings. It's okay to feel whatever you do feel. And as I said earlier, let it be information for you. You don't have to judge it. Just know that your feelings are valid and there's space for them in your life. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today to listen to my conversation with Jarrell Carabello. You can find more about Jarrell at jarrellcarabello.com or you can find more about Viva Wellness at vivawellnessnyc.com. You can find all the information that of things that we talked about in this episode in the show notes at theilluminatepodcast.com. And we would love if you followed our journey on social media. You can follow the Illuminate podcast on Twitter at Illuminate underscore pod. And then on Instagram as well at the Illuminate podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, I hope that you'll give it a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. And well, thank you all for being here and for all your support of the podcast.